Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. So it's around about 3.15 UK time on Sunday. Novak Djokovic finished off beating Milos Raonic a bit over an hour ago. That rounded off day seven at the Australian Open. Billie Jean successfully fetched her first tennis ball earlier on today, which, let's be honest, was the result of the day. Mm. Um, So I thought I'd cover that off early. She's very pleased with herself. I could not possibly have given her more congratulations. (laughs) I made it very clear that that was desirable behaviour that should be repeated in the future. And I think she's got the message. Uh, David, how long have you been awake for? 15 hours and 18 minutes. I don't feel great. (laughs) (laughs) I really don't. I mean, I felt fantastic in the middle of the night when I was watching all that stuff. He was pumped, folks. Oh, it's just amazing. But yeah, about two and a half hours ago, I hit the wall big time. Matt and I bowed out for a bit. So we watched uh, the back-to-back women's matches on the Rod Laver Arena, although I have to confess that without realising it, I did fall asleep midway through Serena against Sabalenka and I woke up uh, to find my my iPad with the the tennis on it had tumbled off the bed um i was i was lying in a sea of twiglets and billy jean <laughs> was sitting in the middle of that sea looking like she just had the best 45 minutes of her life um <laughs> so I woke up caught the end of uh, serena sabalenka cleared up the twiglets and then bowed out i think at the same stage that matt bowed out we just didn't have the stomach for dimitrov team at which point david said no I'm sticking with it. By that time, I'd got no choice because I'd, I'd got about an hour and a half until I was due in at the BBC to start commentating, um, which was, I, I'm not sure I planned it really that sensibly. But look, I had the time of my life for about six hours. Um, so I'm going to just try and, you know, live off that, really. Yes, we will try and, t- tennis relived for the for the six hours during which David had the time of his life. Matt, how are you feeling? Yeah, 
I'm okay. I think I had two hours sleep there where I ducked out. I caught the end of the Australia Seam match and then went to bed and then woke up expecting to watch the end of Team Dimitrov and was very surprised that it had already finished. Um, yes, that is one of the big surprise results from overnight. There's plenty to talk about, isn't there? I don't think we've had... Well, certainly on the men's side, we haven't had an absolutely barnstorming match. On the women's side, I feel like we have had at least one of those. Two, in fact, I would say, of those. Is barnstorming too much? I would say barnstorming. Mm, I'd agree. Yeah. Okay, yeah. We'll, we'll start there then. We'll start with the barnstormers and let's go chronologically. A, a midnight first up start for Naomi Osaka against Garbine Muguruza. A real shame for Muguruza that the rankings are such now that she is encountering these top, top players so early in Grand Slams. It feels like it doesn't feel right that this should be a fourth round match. Um, But anyway, a fourth round match it is, uh, much to our delight. And we, we were all pretty pumped for this. And when that's the case, there's always the risk that you're sorely disappointed, especially with the Saka, because doesn't matter how good the opponent is there as you said David she might just separate herself she might be in the process right now of separating herself there was always the risk I think that she just came out and hit Muguruza off the court and for for a game for the first game it looked like that might happen Osaka was brilliant in the first game a sort of rash of winners looked to have found her range straight away and then Muguruza kind of took over with her consistency. It was it was a little strange actually seeing Muguruza be be so conservative by contrast on the tennis court. You're used to her being the playmaker, but she her tactic was to kind of suffocate Osaka with her consistency and depth. There was a lot of hitting down the centre of the court. You know, she she went for winners when they were on, and most of the time she was making them. And it was lovely tennis to watch. She was serving well, but she was she was not taking risks out there, and it was really really working. Osaka was far far below par. Interestingly, after the match, Osaka, in in reference to the number of unforced errors she was hitting for. For a good two sets, really, she said she felt like she needed to hit a lot of unforced errors because she couldn't to get, afford to give Muguruza any short balls, um, which is very interesting. She she said she was intimidated coming onto the court because of Muguruza's recent form. And I guess with the benefit of hindsight and 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 the result, Osaka winning through 7-5 in the third, that, that kind of makes sense. So she hits three unforced errors, Osaka, to go down two match points in the third set. Uh, and uh, from that point onwards, Naomi Osaka didn't hit another unforced error in the remaining 22 points of the match. She hadn't had a shocker up to that point. She hadn't found her best level, but she was kind of hanging in. And then suddenly she found two levels, just out of her back pocket. And it was extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. She, she found a level that I haven't seen in this tournament by anybody. Um, and it was unplayable. She was irresistible. 
she was yeah she was scrappy really i thought for for much of the rest of it and but but i thought muguruza was showing us how she won the french open in wimbledon those relentless drives of hers off both sides and then happy enough to go to the net just to finish off with short balls but and she thought she'd got the job done it looked like she'd got the job done at the same time i mean we were exchanging messages in the middle of the night and i still had a feeling that osaka might might still turn it around. And Matt said, you know, until she's lost, I still back her to find a way. And because I think she's just become so good at managing a three-set match and timing things, timing changes and, and adjustments so that she can still get the job done in time. Most so, so many players run out of time. But then the stuff that she was actually doing to turn that around from match points down, these were just clean winners, off extended rallies. She was sometimes going 15, 17 shots but, and being pushed, but still finding the final answer. Um, and this, her speed around the court, her balance, her imagination of angles and, and power off both sides and the serve starting to work. I mean, I was punching the air in my hotel room and I don't, I didn't, <laughs> I don't care really who wins. It's not about supporting a player it's just being uplifted by somebody producing that sort of level of tennis with their back against the wall it was really something to use a really lowbrow pop culture reference which matt i'm relying on you after this to to raise the tone it's uh it's a little bit like in the fast and the furious fast and the furious one i haven't bothered with any subsequent films i'm aware that there are sort of 17 Fast and the Furious movies now. Uh, but in the Fast and the Furious, when they have to time their injection of nitrous oxide at exactly the right moment to slingshot them over the finish line. Mm. That's what Naomi Osaka does. She presses the nose button at the perfect juncture. This is the time for some Greek mythology now, Matt. <laughs> Especially because I'm after you and I've got a really lowbrow equivalent. <laughs> well, I have Lowerbrow no... than the Fast and the Furious. <laughs> I'd say so. I have the no Diesel references film, David. whatsoever. <laughs> but what you're saying about her timing, her injection of quality that no one else on the planet can touch, I think is absolutely true. And as David said, she's now got this incredible record in three-set matches. Pam Shriver pointed out on Twitter that she's won her last 13 three-set matches at slams, going back to the 2017 US Open was the last time she lost one. And it's kind of for that reason that I just have this unwavering belief in Osaka to come up with the goods at the right time. And I think she has that belief herself. Um, she said that she felt the entire match she was overthinking and then in those 22 points, she was able to play in kind of instinctive free tennis. And that is how it felt. It felt like this brilliant tennis just came pouring out of her. And the number of winners she hit, the number of backhands up the line she hit to take control of the rallies was irresistible, as you said. Um, and it, it, frankly, it was a pleasure to watch them play against each other. They've had mm. these great careers that have existed in parallel kind of because they've been world number one at different times and they've won different slams to each other and they've never even played each other and yet they feel like different generations 
Yeah. And yet oh, there's only a few years separating them. Yeah. And this was the first time that they've intersected in a tournament. And based on based on what we saw today, certainly that final set where I really did think the level was pretty phenomenal by the end. Um, let's hope they play many, many more times because they match up very intriguingly against each other. Another thing, Matt, that Pam Shriver said, and, and I put this to both of you, uh, is that Muguruza's forehand fell apart for the last few games. There's, there's been uh, a lot of difference in opinion as to how much Muguruza was to blame for how the final uh, three or four games transpired. Mm. Discuss. Yeah, and, and personally, I'm just quite happy to just cede to Pam on that because I she can tell more than I can. I mean... I I didn't note that Pam had said she should target the the Muguruza forehand from now on. But there was a point where she just said that, and I and that made me start to look at that. And I I kind of knew that Muguruza's forehand was known as the weaker wing of the two, but so I kept an eye out for that, and I did see a, quite a bit of traffic going there because uh, Osaka has the the ability to hit that inside out backhand, which not that many players can do from the middle of the court the way the way that she can um but yeah the the i didn't feel that i mean i certainly didn't think it was a choke i think she got tight but i think the main thing that happened was she just got rocked back on her heels and probably was what on earth is this you know and and so I, i'm sure that thought that shot probably did start to buckle um and i certainly would take pam's word for it and it felt to me like if she'd been playing anyone else in the draw she probably would have closed that out it was mm. it, it felt more to me like Osaka stepping up uh, I do think Muguruza could have got some more first serves in when she came to serve for the match her match points came on Osaka's serve and one of them was an ace and then an extended rally which Muguruza went long with a forehand on on the second match point but then when she served it out she never was fully convincing with her first serve um, and yeah, so I give the credit to Osaka, but it's probably worth saying if there is one tiny criticism of Muguruza's reascension over the last year, it's that we've not seen her close out the biggest matches she's played. She's not won a title since she sort of got back to being a relevant force in the game again, whereas Osaka wins titles all the time and wins big titles all the time. So that was kind of why I just trusted her in those biggest moments a little bit more. So I I think normally there's a push and pull, isn't there? Someone getting a little bit tight and someone stepping up. But I would certainly say that Osaka stepped up more than Muguruza got tight. Mm, yeah, I would say the same. Definitely not a choke. She tightened up. Who wouldn't? Yeah. Um yeah, absolutely. So Naomi Osaka through to the quarterfinals. Uh, she has always gone on to win the title on the three occasions she has previously reached a Grand Slam quarterfinals. That's a, a formidable record. Um, she doesn't bother going this far unless it's, unless it's for the trophy. <laughs> um, she plays in that quarterfinal, Sue Wei Shea. <laughs> and when she was asked about her next opponent, Sue Weishay, in her post-match interview, which was glorious, by the way, um, the first question that was put to her by quite a nervous interviewer, I think, you know, she can be quite 
disarming with her answers. I can understand why you would get nervous in that situation um, interviewing Naomi Osaka. And it was quite a wordy question. Um, he sort of he sort of talked himself around in a circle and. Um, as is as is quite a common mistake that us broadcasters make. I've done it several times. You ask a question that's not a question; it's a statement. Um, <laughs> and Naomi Osaka, who sort of followed up this line by saying, "Look, I'm a bit tired," just went, "That's not a question." <laughs> and uh, and it was it was kind of great. She didn't do it in a mean way. Um, I hope the interviewer didn't take it that way. She was just saying it how she saw it. She was like, I, I can't answer that because you haven't asked me a question. Um, he then uh, went on to ask her about her next opponent, Sue Weishay. And as he was getting the question out, she just goes, huge sigh. Huge sigh. And then she goes, I'm not really looking forward to that match. And it was, it was just great. Well, the record between them is I think it's 4-1 Osaka, but a, a, a lot of them have been close. And uh, three setters, and she's just caused a nightmares, really. Um, and, and I think I think the one win that um, that Shay has is in Miami, I think, mm-hmm. uh, over three sets. And, and yeah, there's, there's clearly some muscle memory there. I think she sort of simultaneously loves it and enjoyed the challenge and was proud of herself for having the record, but also knows from that muscle memory, just how hard work it is trying to deal with Shay's game. Yeah, she said, it's fun when I'm not angry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that says, says it all, doesn't so it? So presumably, Shay makes you angry. Exactly. And I vividly remember watching them play in the fourth round of the Australian Open two years ago. I watched them play, sat courtside for that match, and Shay led it a set 4-2 and 40-love. And she was bamboozling Osaka and Osaka was trying all sorts of things out of her comfort zone to try and counter what Shay was doing, probably overthinking it in the same way she spoke about today. And then suddenly just decided, right, I'm just going to go for my shots. And if they go in, I can take over with my power. And they did start to go in. And I think she won 11 of the last 12 games in that match. Um, so it is on her, it is on Osaka's racket, but it's a very mentally, challenging match to not get frustrated and not get caught up in what Shay is doing um yeah it it really should be fascinating there's there's not a whole load to say about the way that Sue Shea reached the quarterfinals her first Grand Slam quarterfinal at the age of 35 which is just amazing I love that story she's the um, oldest first time Grand Slam quarterfinalist in, amazing. in the open era Amazing. She said she tries to convince herself that she's 18, <laughs> which was one of many brilliant lines from her in her press conference. Um, yeah, she beat a very clearly injured Marketa Vondrosheva. We, I think we each were multi-screening and had an, had an eye on that and were prepared to switch over to that from the Muguruza Osaka match if it got exciting. But it was so, so clear um, that Vondrosheva was so compromised to the extent that it was a bit uncomfortable to watch and, and yeah. you found yourself wondering why she was why she was continuing um, really. You know, it, it felt inevitable sort of from midway through the first set, I think. So that that was a real shame. Um, so rather than, than dwell on the means of victory, uh, we'll talk about 
just the fact of it, the fact that Sue Weishay, with that game at the age of 35, is in her first Grand Slam quarterfinal. Um, she did a press conference after the match, which was obviously a joy. Um, and her coach, Paul McNamee, did a press conference after the match. In fact, all the coaches of the uh, the women's quarterfinalists did this. It's something that the WTA organised, and that's fantastic. Uh, and I just wanted to share with you this story of Paul McNamee's. Um, I've got it from the WTA Insider uh, Twitter feed. Um, I mean, there were a whole bunch. Of, it sounds like every day is a new wonderful story with Sue Weishay, but this is one that um, that I think uh, sheds a bit of light on uh, on her as a person and as a tennis player. Um, she, he was asked, Paul McNamee, how would you characterise her personality compared to all the other players? And he said, there's only one Sue Way. There's times when she's kind of focused and other times when she's really not motivated at all to practice. I've experienced it where she'll just go and hit one or two balls, didn't hit them well, and that's it. She won't play anymore that day, wasn't feeling it. I've seen her play a game. She's so precise the way she plays. No one can redirect traffic as well as she can on both sides. Doesn't matter which way it's coming from, she can redirect it either way. She was playing in a match in Eastbourne one day. She was hitting. She missed two balls in a row by three metres. Change ends, keeps going. She's missing balls by so far. That's not Sue Wei. She usually misses by millimetres. I noticed she was playing with broken strings in her racket. Literally playing with broken strings. I said, Sue Wei, your racket. Oh, yeah, she said. I mean, she hadn't broken a string for three years. You tell me a player that uses the same racket for three years and doesn't change the racket or the strings. Now she has to buy rackets, which is very unusual. She doesn't have any contracts at all. That's why she's like Times Square on the court with the different logos from the different companies. She went three years without breaking a string. We had a bit of trauma before this tournament because she had to get a restring. That's once a year that that happens. Players change racket. Play, most players change rackets on the change of balls, right? She'll go years with the same racket. It's different. You've got to accept that. She didn't know what it was like to play with a broken string, so she didn't know it was broken. <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons is she hits the ball so purely in the centre of the racket. Most people break strings when they hit it around the frame. She just doesn't frame balls. I mean, she would rather not play if she did that. That's amazing. She didn't know she had broken a string. Uh, I, I feel good now because I haven't changed my strings in my racket since 2013. Um, I've never broken a string. I don't have very good control. To my great shame. I know that never means that I've broken a string. I've never broken a string. Well, you've Somet- got good some- company now. Sometimes I go on the court <laughs> trying to break a string. My, when I play with my brother, he has to he has to come equipped with three rackets because he usually breaks at least one string. And in fact, my dad has had to take up a post retirement career as a racket stringer <laughs> in order to to keep my brother fully equipped. Um, so I feel. I feel seen by yeah, you should <laughs> by Paul McNamee. I mean, that is extraordinary. Yeah, for a professional player to be to be like that, but and and also the the lack of sponsors. I, I mean, I've I've heard Paul talking for years about wanting her to get sponsorship and having not having any, 
And it just baffles me, really. She's so, I mean, she's there's so much to her, but I don't know. Um, what a treat, though, to have her in these quarterfinals. I think she enriches this tournament almost like no other player because the others you expect and you're looking forward to them and the various matchups, she just throws in this complete googly to use cricket term terminology, mm. you know, this thing you're just not expecting. Um, and, I, and I'm just chuffed, chuffed a bit she's in the draw. There was another fabulous story that Shay gave herself in her press conference. She was asked, what's, what's been the spark to cause you to really improve over the last few years? And, and she told this story about how she was playing at the French Open and her boyfriend's parents came to watch her for the first time. And she looked at them in the crowd and she thought they were falling asleep watching her play. And she thought, well, I better step up then and make sure they're awake for watching me. And then she said, ever since then, I've been beating top 10 players. (laughs) (laughs) And were they falling asleep? She said they looked like they were falling asleep and that was enough for her. (laughs) (laughs) She's she's one of a kind. She's... uh... She's amazing and she's a treat. How old is she again? 35. 35. We're not supposed to mention it at all, David, because it's rude, as she told us in her culture, and yet we've mentioned it a lot. Daily. (laughs) Six times already. Just checking. (laughs) (laughs) To be clear, she is 35 years old. Seven. No, she's 35. Oh. Oh, gosh. To me, to you. Right, moving on, following uh, Osaka and Muguruza onto the Rod Laver Arena and there was a lovely little um, passing of legends backstage. You know, we get the backstage cameras uh, at the Australian Open. We had Naomi Osaka walking past Serena Williams in the warm-up area ahead of her first ever match uh, with Arena Sabalenka. Serena won it 6-4, It was the most wonderfully brash tennis match I actually enjoyed the fact this one didn't have crowds look if you'd offered me crowds I would I would of course I would have taken them I'm not I'm not kidding myself but the fact that you could hear the effort they were putting on the ball the almost laughable attempts to out muscle one another it was yeah it was just brazen and Mm. in your face and just so unashamedly so and I loved that full of message sending down the other end with every giant ground stroke and visceral guttural roar. Um, it was magnificent, really. Um, <laughs> and I, I I told you beforehand that I thought that Serena would have found out that people were saying Sabalenka hits the ball harder than you and it's going through the air faster and that watch out, she's, she's coming for her um, <laughs> to show her. And I mean, actually, it was. Ve- I felt it was pretty even in those in those terms. And then at the end of that first set, Serena hit one forehand that, I mean, it it went down the middle of the court, and it went past Sabalenka because it was so fast. And um, and then it smashed into the backboard, you know. And thinking, well, how have you got that in? You've hit it so flat and so hard. But that was the set point, and that was the set. And. Um, and then, um, but Sabalenka stood up to her, and it was just toe to toe all the way through. I mean, the the most impressive thing to me of the lot was Serena Williams's movement because 
She's nearly 40. We have not seen her, to my knowledge, move like that for about four years. Um, she was chasing down into the corners, full-blooded drives, three in a rally, each corner. She lifted one lob halfway up to the moon. It landed sort of around the service line, and she's there to be put away, and Sabalenka netted the smash. And it was just a signal of how present she was and how 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 much she's moved on, really. Um, and then I think experience probably told in the end. Um, but no, I thought it was a, a great match and a, and and a great quote from Serena afterwards when she said, "Oh, you you want to play power? Okay, let's go." <laughs> and I and I thought, yeah, that's that's what I was hoping for, and that's what we got. Yeah, you absolutely called that, David, and I completely agree. The movement was the thing which stood out the most with Serena, and it looked quite vulnerable in the match against Potapova. So it was really striking how much better it was today, scampering from side to side and playing really great, great defence a number of times. And then the other thing which impressed me was the way she was able to raise her level again at the end, you know, similar to what Osaka did in terms of timing that surge at the end, because we spoke, didn't we, I think in our preview podcast about the fact that Serena's losses recently have been from a set-up. She wins mm-hmm. the first set, she comes out the blocks, then she loses the second, and an opponent can take over. And that was starting to happen a little bit today with Sabalenka in that second set. She was immense. And yet Serena found another level in that deciding set, which she's not been able to find recently. So I thought that was very, very encouraging. And yeah, just overall, I loved the the intensity and the fact it was just such a battle. Yeah, it was really, mm. really great. She said she's used to used to playing against power in, in practice, Serena Williams, so it doesn't bother her. I mean she 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 quite is quite well known that she she almost always has a male hitting partner. And of course in, in Adelaide she had Venus as her hitting partner. So so that obviously stood her in, in very good stead. She's now got a very different prospect in the quarterfinals a 12th career meeting with Simona Halep the head-to-head is nine and two in uh, Serena's favor um the of course the last time they met the Australian Open that was that was really close Halep really challenged her the last time they met full stop it wasn't close at all that was the 2019 Wimbledon final when Halep played just the match of her life the match of anyone's life really um, the perfect tennis match. Um, Halep got to the quarterfinal by beating Iga Shrontek 3-6, 6-1, Finally, a competitive match between Halep and Shrontek. This felt like um, the new mean for their matches. Of course, they should be evenly matched. And the, the two previous matches have kind of been bizarre aberrations. Um, so much intensity from Halep and... Just an impressive lack of panic after losing the first set. Her attitude was kind of infallible throughout. Um, And she went from 10 unforced errors in set one to three in set two, which is kind of a, you know, in a slightly different way, slightly different time. And Osaka left less, an Osaka-esque sort of gear shift and recognition of something needing to change. Uh, Shriantek had a coffee 
delivered to the court early in the third set. She did immediately break the Halep serve after that, but then she got broken herself. So I think overall the effect of the coffee sort of cancelled itself out. Difficult to know what to make of 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 the coffee's impact on the uh, on the match. Other um, than that, it was funny. Other than it was very funny. He gulped it down as well. Well, you've got to. I mean, I hope it wasn't a hot... Either she's got an asbestos mouth Mm. or (laughs) they delivered it at a drinkable temperature. Yeah, because she gulped it like it was a cold beer in a desert. Um, It was a great match, wasn't it? A really great match. Yeah, and I thought... I thought as much as anything, Halep made a really interesting tactical change between the first and second set. She was trying to go toe-to-toe with with Sviontek at the start, and it wasn't really working. Sviontek's got the more explosive power, the more um, incredible shot-making, and Halep decided to stand further back, start hitting the ball a bit higher over the net, to try and get Sviontek moving, and it really, really worked. And then Sviontek became the one who was making the errors and perhaps trying to go for a bit too much when it wasn't really necessary. Halep does that incredible thing of shrinking the court with her movement and you just think, well, where are the gaps? How do you get it past her? Um, Yeah, a a really impressive performance, especially considering what happened to her against Fiontek at the French Open. You could clearly see that she was kind of out for revenge. I think Darren Cahill pretty much said as much in his interview, in his press conference. He said, Simona really doesn't like losing to the same person twice in a row. And she went out there and was pretty determined to flip that rivalry back in her favour. And it had that it had that feel to it from from Halep the whole match. It it was the sort of performance that Darren Cahill would have been so chuffed with. Yeah. yeah. I, I, thought, I thought figuring actually, it out. And particularly yeah. because she lost the first set. Because mm-hmm. uh, Really, I mean, I, my big hope, it was competitive. My big hope was that they played well at the same time. It's often difficult to do that because one affects the other. But for the first six games, I thought that's what we got. And then Sviantec just suddenly produced some of the stuff she did at the French Open and just took off. Um, but whilst doing that, and, and it, I think Halep had had break points in the sixth game, which she didn't take, and then she threw in a, a poor game and Sviantec took over and and Halep did that thing where she sort of sulked a little bit for a couple of games and just got knocked off the court in about five minutes and six six games where it was three all over a long period of time suddenly became six three in a matter of minutes and I mean it could have it could have gone away from her very quickly at that point and I think the way she bounced back you could see Darren Cahill and all her team the way they're jumping up and really being demonstrative because she was doing exactly what they want from her fighting tooth and nail, extending the match, adapting tactics. And she ripped that match away. And it was, uh, it was fantastic achievement. And and one lovely line I thought I kept seeing from John Wertheim kept reporting the the results of these matches as if the, uh, so-and-so has been so-and-so to win the Australian, Oh no, it's the fourth round. You know, <laughs> yeah. because all three of those could have been finals. Yeah. Absolutely. And now of course Serena against Halep could absolutely be a final. Halep mm. in the on-court interview asked afterwards she was being put the question about her next opponent and she she interrupted because she knew exactly who was waiting for her 
in the next round, which I and she wasn't afraid to show that. You know, she was she, buzzing about it, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So she's a legend. She she's interrupted to say, "Legend." Yeah, lovely, lovely moment, really, and the look mm. in her face. And she was talking about their shared history. I mean, she's on the the wrong end of the rivalry. Obviously, had some wins, but. Um, excited at the prospect and I, I love that that that's we've had Sabalenka talk like that we've had Naomi Osaka back in the US Open just saying oh I just want to make her say come on you know and, and scream come on and this sort of thing um and and that's I love that you know you've got an absolute legend playing the sport in Serena Williams and everybody's still making the best of it as her opponent yeah I mean it, I remember I always think about um, that question Mary Carrillo put to Simona Halep at the start of her French Open title defence in 2019. Do you think you're too happy? Um, and it it's a very fine line, isn't it? Because, you know, in retrospect, we know that Wimbledon for her was the target that year. She wasn't putting any pressure on herself to defend that French Open title. She would made that decision to make Wimbledon the target and that panned out brilliantly. And I just, I don't know, I wonder if Simona Halep is it sort of just the right level of happiness. I would say. And, uh, and just she, the right level of kind of desire without pressure. She's she's matured as a player, I, mm. I think, and a, and a person to understand how to get the very best out of herself but also enjoy life. It seems at least, you know, mm. I don't know that I don't know, but that's how she comes across now. Well, who's winning it then? Out of those two. Well, you can would... have another 24 hours if you want, but nothing no, is going to change in those 24 hours. I've got hours. Serena Williams in the semi-finals from the start of the tournament and, and I'm going to continue believing that. Matt? Ditto. Okay. Sure. None of us had Halep in the quarters, did we? Yeah. Oh, balls. Think, Although today I, so. I had Sviantek. In the no. newsletter. Oh, you hedged. I hedged. Where did you learn that tactic from? <laughs> well, I have to say, I, I probably would have been the same because I did not. I didn't really see Sviantek having this sort of form in mm. this tournament. I think she's she's done better than I expected. So when they were head to head, I thought I thought she might get the better of it. But I think know. she might have done better than she expected as well. Mm. I think she might have perhaps inadvertently played a really great mind game on herself. To, to take the pressure off in the early stages. Mm. Um, and I'd, I'd say fourth round, especially given who she lost to, this that is a great kind of backing up being the French Open champion slam. She's, she's, she's crossed that hurdle. I know they'll be defending her title and all of that, more hurdles to come, but she's, she's ticked that box for me. Um, speaking of points earned in uh, the daily predictions... Aslan Karatsev is my new main man. <laughs> <laughs> he happened today. I was not expecting to be saying that. Uh, and he... you, hang on, and you definitely weren't saying that when he was two sets to love down. No, but you went to bed. <laughs> yeah, you said. You said. Why have I picked a man I've never seen play to beat Felix Auger Aliassime? <laughs> well. I just, I just felt it in the water. <laughs> and you uh, got a, there was a lot of points on offer for it. He they? came from two sets down to beat Felix Auger-Eliassime. He's the world number 114. 
He's the lowest ranked quarter finalist at the Australian Open for 30 years. Um, look, there, there's two sides to this story. There's the Felix Auger-Aliassime collapse side and there's the Aslan Karatsev being unexpectedly great side. Um, he was decidedly underwhelmed by the whole thing, seemingly, in the press conference. The least surprised guy, on well, on the basis of his sort of tone and what he had to say by all this is Aslan Karatsev. He said it felt amazing, um, but he said it in the most sort of dead tone ever. He sort of said, yeah, it's amazing. Next question. <laughs> um, it's hard work for the journalists, isn't it? It was hard work, yeah. He, he was asked about the bathroom break he took after the second set. Um, he was asked, you know, did you give yourself a pep talk? during that bathroom break, as, you know, players have been known to do. And he just went, I went for a toilet. (laughs) (laughs) And that was that. That's very funny. Um, I kind of like it. (laughs) Yeah. uh, There was no, like, sort of walking in there beaming, just pleased to be there. He was like, yep, I'm here. What of it? He's got the title on his mind. (laughs) Blimey. (laughs) I mean, it would be very sort of weird pandemic times for Aslan Karatsev to he's become won, the Australian Open champion. He's won $600,000 in his whole career over nine years and he's earned $400,000 this week. So, um, you know, things have taken a turn for the better. He's made <laughs> um, the trip worthwhile. Yeah. Um, by contrast, I went to Felix auger Sim's press conference, expect to find a kind of sits a pass post Nadal loss esque figure. Um and I don't know whether this is good or bad, but I really didn't find that at all. Um he accounts for the whole thing by saying, look, Karatsev raised his level. Uh, he said he said his level dropped a, a bit, but he just kept saying he was really proud of how he fought to the end. Um, it was the f- the first ever five set match that Felix Auger Aliassime has played, I think, which really surprised me. Um, and there's also another little reminder that kind of we've we've just integrated him into our sort of top tennis players consciousness, but actually he's still you know he's still 19 years old. It's you know he's still ahead of the curve. Um, but yeah, he kept saying, "Look, I stayed positive, and I genuinely believed." Until the very end, he just felt he said, "Look, what I've learned from this is I just need to improve my improve my game." Did it? Did it look to you like he believed till the very end? Because you sent um, a message, David, before the end, saying, "Look, he's gone. This is over." The fir- first game of the fifth set, I, mm. I, I thought he's gone. I was watching watching that the comeback, I, I, but I only David found... was watching everything. <laughs> I was literally, but, but I did turn. I turned off that particular screen. At two sets to love because I thought, oh yeah, it's it's a kind of a non-event really. He was handling him pretty straightforwardly, and then about an hour later, Matt just sent one word message um, about about this match. And I, I, was it just I was, Karatsev? I think it was just OMG FAA or something like that. I think it um, might have been Felix with the Sitsapas grimace emoji. Yeah, there you go. So then I turned it back on and then he'd lost the third set and he was 4-1 down in the fourth. So I watched a bit I watched a bit more and the moment he got broken at the start of the fifth, I mean, he just looked 
like he didn't have much much left. He did fight. I, I, to be fair to him, he did fight in that fifth set. Um, but Karatsev, I mean, he hits the ball a ton off the ground and flat. Just a great ball striker, and he was relentless. And, and he, he should he's still a, win, though. Felix Auger-Oh, oh, I mean, I just don't. I'm really surprised that he didn't win in three sets and maybe four, but probably three. I, that's what I. That's why I turned it off. I just it just seemed very uncompetitive. Um, but once once they got into the the deeper waters of the match, there one guy was a man and one was a boy. By the way, Felix is twenty now, but oh. I mean he's he is he does look young and he's still got a long way to go. And I mean, I suppose that the reason we the reason the reason it knocks you is because a this was a great opportunity. He's playing a guy he's supposed to beat on rankings by a mile and he's lost these seven finals in straight sets. These little things just niggle away at you and you and he needed this would have been a way for him to just prove a bit that he's got more than just talent. You know that he's got mm-hmm. the killer instinct and that, that he's keeps talking about wanting and that he's got the the sort of endurance and the toughness to, he that's what he's got to develop uh, at the moment mm. that's not there yeah his his game did start to resemble the game we've seen him put forward in finals where he started to make some uncharacteristic errors and his serve kind of deserted him a little bit in those last three sets but i mean karatsev was playing brilliantly he really does a huge ball and is difficult to stop. I think when he gets on a bit of a roll, um, personally, I was expecting to find that Felix Auger-Alia seem in press conference because that's his thing, isn't it? He's always been mature Mm -hmm. and has perspective and, you know, we've sort of, he's kind of been ahead of his time in so many ways and is able to see things, from a sort of big picture perspective rather than just get totally lost in the fact that he's lost this match from two sets to love up. There, there are... It's immature to be gutted though. But I think, no, agreed. But I think a mature reaction is also to realise that he's achieved quite a lot over the last couple of weeks mm. and there is, there is progress there. Um, personally, I would have been more disturbed if he'd been totally freaked out by this loss and thought that that was putting his career back a lot because I don't think it was that. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Okay, I feel reassured. So for a place in the Australian Open semi-final, it will be Aslan Karatsev against Grigor Dimitrov, uh, who beat Dominic Team in straight sets. David, we've picked the wrong slam to stop talking about Grigor Dimitrov. <laughs> I know. Six years worth, <laughs> at least. At least six More years More than worth. that, he is 30 in May. <laughs> oh, no. And we started this podcast in 2012. I mean, you, you can go back and all you hear about for the next four years is Grigor Dimitrov, yeah. next big thing. And um, Don't go uh, back. Don't go back. <laughs> um, and then by the time we've written him off, now he's going to come through and start showing us up. Um, but the the story is Dominic Team is out and out six four six four six love. Which I mean, I, I sort of thought when it started, I thought I think Dimitrov can can really cause him push him at least can really push him because of his athleticism, his ability to cover the court. He's really fit and he'll get a lot of balls back. But ultimately, probably team should be able to hit through him uh, at his best. He's just got the heavier shot. Um, but I, I didn't actually look at the head-to-head. It was 3-2 in Dimitrov's favour. A lot of those are a long time ago, though. So I would, even if I'd have seen that, I'd have probably written that off, really, at this level. Something was wrong with team today. Uh, and he admitted it afterwards, but he was very reluctant to give detail that would take anything away from his opponents but there was he in the third set it was a 21 minute set he could barely walk to the balls you know he was he was out on his feet yeah he he didn't celebrate very much Grigor Dimitrov winning that match despite sort of the magnitude of the victory for him you know he knew it was a a very compromised opponent I think you know they practice a lot together they're they're quite close um yeah, he he said he he said he was pleased with his consistency after the match, but didn't really want to talk too much about about his performance. Dimitrov, you know, he knew what the situation was. Team said it was a combination of three things: uh, some quote little physical issues, a bad day, and a great opponent. Um, he said, "I'm not a machine. 
I'd like to be, but there are bad days. Um, but as you say, David, he didn't didn't want to go into detail on the physical issues. So mm. I think I read some quotes in German that suggested it was a foot problem. Um, I think that was on the basis of the fact that he was having the shoe issues, though. No, but team himself said it was a foot problem, oh, but right. not related to the shoes. Right, um, he's he's very clear. Yeah, the probably shoes are great. with a man from Adidas <laughs> with a gun to his head, uh, that the shoes are absolutely not a contributing factor to <laughs> any of his failings ever. The shoes are fantastic. <laughs> um, yes, yeah. that is the very clear messaging. I love my trainers. <laughs> I tell you what, Dimitrov's got a heck of an opportunity now, hasn't he? Heck of an opportunity. He, uh, I, I'd, I, I've. Been re- I've really let it slip with keeping across Grigor Dimitrov news. He's working with Dante Bettini um, newly this season, former coach of uh, Kane Shikori, and he had a spell with Nicholas Jarry oh, as right. well. I didn't know that either. No, we've we've really picked the wrong time to let our abreastness of Dimitrov news slide. David, we'll we'll get back on it. Yeah, and Matt, Matt, Matt wasn't interested in the slightest. He's next gen tennis podcast. <laughs> Thirty in May, Grigor Dimitrov. I, I I like Grigor Dimitrov a lot, but listeners of this podcast will know Dominic Team. I've been mm. I've been on that train for a while myself. Um, I must say, just on the on the topic of coaches, I look. I don't think Team was asked about this, and this is pure speculation on my part, but. To me, team hasn't quite seemed himself at the Australian Open, and it's notable that Nicholas Massou is not with him. He he didn't travel because didn't he test positive for COVID just before he was supposed to go and quarantine? Now, mm. I don't know what the impact of that could be, but that has been a very important relationship, I think, for for moulding team into the player he is at the moment. And I'm sure he's in constant touch with Nicolas Massou, but it's not the same. That's a good point, actually. And also in the micro sense, he's such a presence in the players' in box. Matches. Yeah. Yeah. His energy, especially in a crowdless situation, his energy mm. counts for a lot, I think. Yeah, that's that's a very good point, actually. But it, yeah, it's a, I'm, I'm chuffed for Dimitrov, but it's a, it does feel like a shame for the tournament that... Uh, that Dominic Team has has limped out like that, but just to be clear, the trainers are great. <laughs> um, but it turns out impossible is something. <laughs> uh, so, which we, which we found out from Mary Carrillo was invented by Justine Innan. Yes. Um, so so it, so somebody did say it originally genuinely uh, when she originally. when she won the gold medal at the olympics in 2004 which was fascinating and adidas apparently heard that and decided to use that as a i mean they're her sponsor aren't they but they decided to use it as a their slogan mm. yeah not impossibly something impossible is nothing <laughs> <laughs> um i tell you what novak djokovic i think will be pleased to see dominic team head out of the tournament. Novak Djokovic, spoiler alert, is still in the tournament. Uh, He defeated Milos Raonic for a 12th consecutive time uh, in four sets uh, late on the Rod Laver arena. Um, You might think sort of 
four sets. There was a point where it was a set apiece, potentially competitive match. But I don't know, David, you were commentating on it. To me, it never really felt felt competitive. Is, no. is that too harsh on Milos Raonic? Well, I think it was competitive, but the never it never felt perilous for Djokovic, mm. really. The only question mark to me was when he lost the second set, whether he was in any physical difficulty that was going to impede him being able to finish the match off or worse, you know. I mean, my mind went back to when he had his elbow problem and, and he lost a set against Thomas Burdick and I think he went a breakdown and then he just pulled the plug. I mean, obviously that was ended up being a serious injury. There was the US Open one when he played Stan Wawrinka and he'd been having problems with his shoulder all week and he lost, I think he lost a set there and then that was it and he and he finished the match. Um, and I did think, you know, that has to be a possibility here if uh, if he's pulled a muscle in his side and depending on the severity of it. And I still think that could be a possibility if he were to go down in a match and it be part of the problem and he not see any way back. Maybe, maybe he'll give it up. But there also seems to be just... I mean, I think he, I think he's now more aware than he has been in the past of the years slipping away here and the chances slipping away to close the gap. So he is going to make whatever decisions he needs to make in order to tot up Grand Slam titles, which, you know, is not surprising really. There was a whole saga, saga leading up to the match about whether he would even take to the courts. Journalists were camped out at the practice court he had, he had booked that evening to see whether he would show up. He said after the match that it really was touch and go up until an hour before the match as to whether he would take to the court. My feeling is that if you were an alien that had dropped from space and you didn't know anything, um, you might have at a couple of points thought that he was a little bit hampered, but broadly he looked fine. Um, now, look, I, d- I don't doubt that there's a there's a muscular issue there of some sort. As I say, there were there, w- there was the odd moment he was he was a little bit dodgy on his sort of stretching out on his forehand in the first set, but you know, sort of gathering opinions of various experts who have played the game and have had muscular muscular issues in the past. Joe Jury and Greg Rosetsky, they've both said if you've got a muscle tear, I mean, it's just game over pretty much. You can't move, particularly in in your core. Your mm. core area. Well, we saw what happened to Joe Conta, didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. It's so uh, it, it it seems to me like it can't can't be a tear. It's obviously something he's he's managing. Um, but hey, he you know he took care of Milos Raonic handily tonight. He, handily, he looked, he looked all right. Really, in the yeah. in the in the points, he looked fine. To be yeah. honest, mm. yeah, I think in between the points, if you just watch those moments, you think he was probably in quite a lot of discomfort at times and perhaps he was, but then it didn't translate into the points. I mean, the way he reads Raonic's serve is it's incredible, unbelievable. Really. Mm. He can, he can lean one way and hit it back at Raonic's feet or for a clean winner. And I feel like I've seen that movement of Raonic trying to sort of get out the way of his own backhand yes. and, and untangle his <laughs> yes. own feet so many times today. I know what that's like, and that's just walking down the street. <laughs> it's uh, it's reminiscent of the way Federer just used to be able to read Andy Roddick's serve, isn't it? He just yeah. could. He just. But but the different. I mean, he Federer used to do a great job of diffusing that serve to get neutral in a rally. Djokovic attacks it. 
I mean, yeah. he, 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 puts him on, he puts him on the back foot or he just leaves him defenceless. Raonic didn't do a good job of, d- didn't do a good enough job for me of not trying to Im- embroil, of trying not to embroil himself in the longer rallies, though. He, I thought he should have taken a few chances, even if it meant more errors. Mm. To be honest, I thought that for five years. Ever yeah. since he had that run to the Wimbledon final and he was in the final of Queens when he was under McEnroe and, and he was under Moyer before that and he was coming to the net all the time. That was him at his best. Yeah. But, I mean, two things. One is, he, he it seems he had a problem with his ankle. He had that heavily strapped in the middle of the match. Um, the other yes. thing is, some, uh, when I, I often think, oh, why doesn't he just tee off? Why don't they be more aggressive? And it's like the, the Ash Barty thing of yesterday. It's all well and good wanting to belt the living daylights out of the ball. But if it's not where you want it to be, because the other blokes or the other players put it in a horrible place. And that's what Djokovic and Barty, these players, they, they know how to make you uncomfortable. And as you said, Matt, Ranić just always seems off balance and tangled. Mm. I think Djokovic was asked about the injury in his press conference more more directly than he was in the on-court interview. And he said he's had an MRI. He knows what the injury is. Um, he says he is risking, or he's been told he's risking further injury, but he won't know the full extent until he's off the painkillers, which is just going to play on for the rest of the tournament. And he thinks he can probably get through matches, hopefully. Um, he did say that he's not, he doesn't want to speculate about what the injury is, which I think, considering that he's, he started the speculation yeah. in that on-court interview by saying it was a tear, is perhaps not, you know, perhaps a little bit rich, but I can understand that he doesn't, you know, perhaps doesn't want to disclose it. And it sounds to me like it will be something that he's hopeful can get better over the next few days and he can manage. Um, but... It could be a factor. I, I do believe he has a strain or a pull or of something and he is affected by it. But whether it actually translates to really negatively impacting his tennis against the people that's left in this draw, well, we'll find out. It's a bit like Nadal, isn't it? Need to see them really tested to know yeah. the extent to which the injury is a factor. Uh, his next test, Djokovic, will be against Alex Verev who calmly and quietly has ambled his way through to the quarterfinals. He beat Dusan Lajevic on the Yvonne Gulagong arena today. Uh, just incidentally, if you're if you're new to the podcast, we do tend to pick up new listeners during the slams. Um, we have made the decision to refer to the second court at um, the Australian Open as the Yvonne Gulagong arena um, rather than the Margaret Court arena um, in recognition of the inspiration that uh, Yvonne Goulagong is as a tennis player and also um, as uh, an advocate and campaigner for for important things, for for the indigenous people of Australia um, and for equality and human rights. So that's a decision. That's, that's what we're doing. Um, just so you don't think that we're all idiots that don't understand <laughs> what things are called at the Australian Open. I mean, for a long time, I really didn't know what the third court at the Australian Open was called. <laughs> but I've really nailed it with the John Kane Arena this year. I'm all over that. Um, yeah, on the Yvonne Gulagong Arena, uh, yeah, uh, Zverev got the better of Dusan Lajevic, three straight sets. 
15 aces, three double faults, 72% first serves in, and 44 winners for Zverev. Mm. He looks really pretty good today. I mean, I, again, I think live, I think it's a measure of how far he's come because Livich took him five sets two years in a row at the French Open, but that was clay, much more suited to Livich's game. But he's definitely moved on in terms of his efficiency and his serve looks pretty strong at the moment. Now, what happens when it's under pressure against Novak Djokovic is another matter. These two, I mean, Djokovic joking about how Zverev says he's got a strain in his side as well. And that they're, so we'll see whether, whether those two elements become factors in the match. I think they're both capable of making the other one uncomfortable. Um, Djokovic physically, because if, if Zverev starts acing him a lot or dominating, he could keep it close, make it physical in that way and maybe able to live with him to some degree from the baseline. And, is Zverev's serve going to go off if if it just keeps coming back? You know, there's a lot there's a lot up in the air with that match, um, and could be quite interesting. I, th- I think there are players left in the draw, even before the final, that could certainly make Djokovic physically have to work bloody hard. You know, I think Dimitrov could make him work really physically hard if they played each other. You know, so we'll see. Or Karatsev. Well, I mean, if he plays like he has. He could cause a lot of people difficulties, but I'm sort of waiting for reality to strike, you know? It just went to toilet. So that is the quarterfinal lineup from the top half of the men's draw. Just to whiz you through um, a few other things that happened on day seven before I bring you up to date with day eight's order of play, the top seeds... Uh, one through to the semi-finals in both wheelchair events, the men's Shingo Kanida uh, and in the women's Dida de Groot. Um, Dylan Alcott, the top seed in the quad men's. He's also through to the semis, as is uh, the second seed, the Brit Andy Lapthorne. They've got quite a, uh, a rivalry, haven't they, Dylan Alcott and Andy Lapthorne? Um, the band are back together. Bruno Suarez, Jamie Murray, they're going well in the men's doubles, as are Herbert and Mau. They got through to the quarters today, Matt. Happy scenes. Allez. Um, and top seeds Shay, Suwei Shay and Stritzova went out in the women's doubles the other day. Um, that had passed me by a bit. So Shay, the yes. world number one doubles player, is now focusing on her singles. Shay double is off. We'll have to just... Settle for the <laughs> Shea single. Um, so Sabalenka and Mertens are now the top seeds remaining. Looking through that women's doubles draw, there's a lot of unseeded partnerships doing well. So that's an interesting one. Um, and just outside of the Australian Open, a um, couple of interesting results. Fran Jones got her first ever top 100 win over Zheng Sai Sai. Um, I saw a clip of that, word, a point where Fran Jones dropped her racket at the back of the court, picked it up and hit a shot and won the point. So good day for Fran Jones. Um, Andy Murray is into the final of the Biela Challenger, which he'll play at some point today. He's he, halfway through. Oh, is he? he? Against Ilya, Mar- Ilya Marchenko. Yeah, he's lost the first set, actually, right. 6-2. Okay. But, you know, we'll see. Soon to be out of date tennis news. Um, <laughs> and Sophia Kennan lost 2-6, 7-6, 6-4 to an Australian teenager called Olivia Gadecki. And it's not just us that haven't heard of Olivia Gadecki. 
She, it's it's on un, it's unclear whether she has a singles ranking. Um, that's a that's a tough loss. Yeah, she was certainly unranked at the start of the year. I think she might have played Australian Open qualifying, and then actually, I think she might have been in the Gippsland draw, oh, yeah. maybe in doubles. Um, Gippsland, Matt. Sorry, Gippsland. Gippsland. Yes. <laughs> um. But yeah, that was one of two bizarre scorelines I woke up to. The Dimitrov team one and then that one. And this we should say this is the adjacent WTA event that's going on, isn't it? At yes, Melbourne on Park. F- yes, it's called the Phillip Island something or other. Trophy, classic, open, one of those. One of those. Yeah, something like that. Um, and I look forward to seeing the trophy for it and what... Uh, what Australian wildlife will be celebrated with the trophy? Well, that's, uh, that's my favourite bit. I mean, actually, the I mean, the whole initiative is nice, isn't it? Uh, anyway, but I do love the trophies. Oh, I figured it out. It'll be a penguin, won't it? Oh, because Phillip yeah, Island right. is where all ah, the penguins are. Great. Well, that shout. is something to look forward to. Splendid. If it wasn't already, Olivia Gadecki lifting a penguin aloft. Um, tomorrow's order of play, day eight at Melbourne Park. Jessica Pagula against Alina Svitolina. That's first up on the Rod Laver Arena. Then it's Donna Vekic against Jen Brady. Then it's Fabio Fanini against Rafael Nadal. A little bit surprised that's in the day session, personally, but there we go. Uh, the night session is Ash Barty against Shelby Rogers, and then Stefano Sitsipas against Matteo Berrettini. The Margaret Court Arena is where you'll find Mackenzie McDonald against Daniil Medvedev, Andrei Rublev against Kasper Ruud and Elise Mertens against Karolina Mukova. So that's your schedule for tomorrow. David, are you going to get any sleep during any of that? Yes, I am. <laughs> right then. You see my um, bloodshot eyes. I have. I have. I'm going to wrap this thing quickly. Uh, Matt, this is the portion of the show where you give us a song. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly isn't. Matt Roberts sings. Uh, The words best show ever uh, have been uttered about yesterday, and we all know why. Um, Okay, I'll settle for shout-outs then. Yeah, and thankfully none of these names are making me think of songs. We'll we'll see. We'll see see what tenuous links I can draw. (laughs) So, uh, Luke Corcoran. Luke Corcoran. Yes. That sounds Irish. Right, Luke. Hello, Luke. Great. Thanks for your support. Rachel Madders. Hi, Rachel. Um, That made me think of something. Isn't Rachel... No. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. Hey, let's say thank you to Rachel. Let's say thank you to Rachel. Yes, thank you, Rachel. And finally, Alex Green. Cheers, oh, Alex. hello, Alex Green. We don't know which Alex Green this is. There no, are we two. do. No, we do. Oh. I'm pretty sure we do. This oh. is the one who is in our predictions competition. Hey, and good I, on you, Alex. I think he he was the guy who uh, increased his pledge to get us to a significant milestone during, during the Kickstarter. What's Thank you, Alex. Bloke. If Aww. only you had a famous song named after you. <laughs> It's the only so thing can... that's disappointing. Yes, I'm, sure, getting, I'm Google I'm getting, something. getting very worried about 
someone called <laughs> Roxanne or something. <laughs> um, which leaves only our mascots, I think. We've got Crumble, who's our Australian Open mascot. Hello, Crumble. Zeus is mine. Uh, Zeus, we 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 kneel at the feet of Aslan Karatsev today and the 40 points or whatever that he brought us. David, you've got Rogue. Yeah, and we picked Serena Williams to beat Irina Sabalenka. Good on you, Rogue. And Matt, Scouse or Mousel? Yeah, no points today. And lots <laughs> of people chipping away at my lead. So we need a good one tomorrow, Scouse or Mousel. Uh, and as we've already discussed, Billie Jean uh, got the biggest win of the day by learning how to fetch a tennis ball. So... Her sponsor, Billie Jean King, will be delighted. Chris Albert Lee is our executive producer. You're a top bloke. Thank you, Chris. We'll be back tomorrow with day eight of the Australian Open. We'll speak to you then. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.